But forget the sermon, let's just listen to music. To, to which all of you said, Amen. So now I'm going to preach for an hour. Just joking. Will you bow your heads with me? Gracious God, it is, there is no doubt that we are thankful for the music that has filled this place this morning. God, we are thankful that in your infinite wisdom and grace, you bestowed upon us the blessing of music and of your people who can sing. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the children, for their parents, and for Scripture. And now we pray that as we open up Scripture for a few moments, that you would enlighten us and that you would give us a fresh word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, for, for those of you who are guests, we are continuing a sermon series where people in our church contributed questions or thoughts or comments as to things that they wanted more information on or things they wanted to know about. And so this morning, we're actually, the, the title of the sermon, which isn't up on top, is The Second Coming of Jesus. Now, that's something that we, as Seventh-day Adventists we hear a lot of, right? It's, it's built into our name, the Seventh-day Adventists. We believe that Jesus is coming but it's also a very broad topic, and so what most of you did, the mistake that most of you guys made is you guys made broad comments or questions, and, and so I got to choose exactly what I get to preach on. So the next time we do this next year, you can be a little more specific. But I felt that as I was praying over this, as I was reading, as I was reading scripture, um, that there was one kind of direction that God was wanting me to go in. And so this morning, if you'll allow me just a few moments, I want to take you through a journey, or rather tell you a story of what this second coming might be. But before we get into what it is, there's something that it isn't. Now, I know that, like any good Adventist, none of you go to the movies. (laughs) However, you all see movie trailers. That's a joke if you're our guest, by the way. A lot of us go to movies. Sometimes we go together. But there is this one movie that I didn't see, but I heard about, and I saw the trailers, and I looked on IMDb on it, and the movie is called The End. This is the end. This is the end. And the basic premise of this movie, it's a comedy. It's one of those really raunchy, bad, dark comedies, I think. Um, I, I was told, you shouldn't go watch it because you're a pastor. So there's my disclaimer for you. So don't go watch it. I didn't tell you to go watch it. But from what I understand, it is a movie about the end of the world, and there are sinkholes, and there are aliens, and there are monsters, and it is just total chaos and pandemonium. It is just insane, and from what I understand, one of the guys in the, in the, of this group of survivors, he says, maybe this is the biblical apocalypse. But they didn't really deal with Jesus. All they dealt with, and one of the things we see, and I think in our movies and our books and all of this, is it's just this fascination with with grim destruction, with all of this evil happening. And so what ends up happening is that we, we are shown a picture of just utter destruction. And so even in our churches, sometimes we paint a picture of when Jesus is coming back, it'll just be this judgment day where there will be fear, where people will be dying, where people will be thrown into a lake of fire. And so even in our churches, we have been influenced by what Hollywood has told us the end is all about. But this morning, I want to reclaim what the second coming of Jesus really is. It's not a picture of disaster and destruction and of people running for their lives. Or rather, it's a message of good news. 
It's a message that one day Jesus will break into earth's history once again, and he will redeem, he will renew, and he will make all things new. That's the message of the second coming of Jesus. So now that I've told you that, I want to show you why that's true. 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus says the following words, I am coming soon. Now, how many of you like to wait for things? Do you guys like to wait for your food when you go to a restaurant? Not usually. Right? If, you're, if you're made to wait 20 minutes in a restaurant, you feel like it's taking an eternity. Isn't that true? Right? Even when we go through the drive-thru, if we have to wait more than like two minutes, we feel like it's an eternity. We are not a kind of people that like to wait. So it's interesting because Jesus says, I am coming soon, but that was more than 2,000 years ago. So either Jesus' understanding of the word soon is different than the way we understand it, or we've just completely misunderstood what it means that Jesus is coming soon. So if we want to look at a scripture, um, it'll be on the screen. And Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is Jesus having a conversation with his 12 disciples. Jesus is preparing them, and he's telling them, listen, I'm going to be leaving, and you're not going to be able to follow me right away. You're not going to be coming with me. This is a journey that I have to take on my own. But he tells them, in my Father's house, there are many rooms if it were not so, why would I tell you that I am coming to, that I am, what does it say? It, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Now, this is, this is words that we've heard in church for, for all of our lives. But what we have to understand about this passage is that Jesus is using wedding language. In the first century, or even before the first century, if, if, you were, if a man was going to marry a woman, he would go to her father and ask his father if he could marry his daughter. And then the father would set a price for his daughter. I know we don't do this anymore, but that's how it was done. And so the, this young man would then go back to his father's house. He would either save up or gather all of the money that, and our things or cattle that were needed to purchase, in essence, his daughter. But he would also go back home and he would add on another, live, like another living space, like another room or another living area, so that when he brings this young lady back, they could have a home of their own. Jesus was simply using language that would have been understandable in the first century to say, I am going to prepare a place for you. But what he's actually saying is, I am coming back to get you. I am coming again. Don't worry if it takes a year or if it takes two years. Maybe he needs five years to gather all the money and all of the cattle and all of the doves that he needs. But he says, no matter how long it takes, whatever you do, don't worry because I am coming to get you. And one day we will be together forever. In John chapter 14, the promise of Jesus is that though, he may, though it may feel that it is taking an eternity for him to come and get us, he will still come back for you and for me. And so this would have been understood in the first century. Now let's look at another passage. Matthew. Jesus makes this statement, though. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
This is an exclusive statement. You know, when we think of Jesus, we think of the Jesus, and we, we preach in our churches that Jesus is coming for everyone who believes in him. But in the first century, Jesus was only coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So let me give you some background if you don't understand what that is. Um, the house of Israel were the Israelites. In the Old Testament, you remember the story of Father Abraham. And God said that he would bless Abraham with, with offspring that would not even be able to be numbered. That it would be like the stars in the sky or the, or the sand on the, on the beach in the desert. He says, Abraham, I will bless you and I will give you offspring beyond number. And those people then became the Israelites or the house of Israel. And what we find in the Old Testament is that God chose the Israelites to be his chosen people. Have you heard that before? The Israelites were God's chosen people. They weren't chosen, though, because they were better than anybody else. They weren't chosen because they were supposed to inherit a specific part of land or anything. They weren't chosen just to be better and rule over others, but rather God decided to work with this group of people, this nation of Israel, so that they would be his witness in the world all around them. God chose the Israelites to be his message in this world. They were supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And the way they were supposed to do this, do you guys know the way they were supposed to do this? They were supposed to follow all of God's laws and all of God's commandments, which included the Ten Commandments. They were supposed to live by certain set of standards and by certain rules and certain laws. And as a result of that, then they would be able to share the message of who God is, a God who is loving, a, lo- a God who is slow to anger, a God who rescues them from slavery and gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. But what we find in the Old Testament, if you read any of the prophets, I mean, read anywhere in the Old Testament, you find that the nation of Israel, these people, they kept missing the point. They kept missing the point that God was the God who wanted the very best for them, and instead they would go after other gods. Now, I don't think any of us have actually ever seen God face to face. We may think we've seen God face to face, but but I don't think any one of us has. And so for them, they didn't see God face to face either. So what they did is, well, you know, we don't see God. God's not here in front of us. But they would go after these other gods, these other idols. There was statues and there was poles and there was holy places. And so the Israelites were like, well, everyone else around us is worshiping at these places. Why don't we go and do the same thing? And so what, what the Bible tells us is that the Israelites, they, for, they forsook God And they traded in the living God for non-living gods. They, They exchanged something that was really, really great. And when they went after other gods or other idols... They they traded God in for something that was really nothing at all. It was human creations. So my analogy or my comparison to today is... What the Israelites did is like trading in a Porsche for a Hot Wheels... A really great car, or substitute any great car in there, you know, and trading it in for a toy car. It's like trading in a a meal from the Orange Hill restaurant or Orange Mining Company, I know there's two of them, and trading that in for a a Happy Meal at McDonald's. I'm going to use this one because I do it. It's like trading in the Denver Broncos for the Oakland Raiders. Or Chargers, or Seahawks, or Dolphins. 
Just watch. They're going to they're gonna win the Super Bowl this year, and then who's going to be laughing? If they don't win, I won't be here the Saturday after. We, no one trades something truly good for something that's mediocre. No, no, one, no one does that on purpose unless, of course, we don't see what is truly great that is in front of us. And for the Israelites, they traded in God for something or someone that wasn't God. They didn't live up to the rules or the commandments that God had given them. And you might be sitting there, well, you know, the, well, Ten Commandments are hard enough, but there was over 600 laws of Moses. How many of you could keep over 600 laws every single day? Yeah, I, could, I mean, we can barely do 10. We, we can barely do the things our wives want us to do. Well, I already know what's going to happen. Wives are going to go home and say, you see, pastor even said it. So, But the truth is, is that if it sounds impossible, it actually was impossible. Which is why Jesus says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. Because ultimately in God's wisdom, he knew that they couldn't possibly follow the 600 plus rules. And part of God's plan was always to send Jesus to reconcile and redeem his people. But you and I aren't a part of the Israelites. You and I are not the Israelites. So I'm going to keep going just to see what happens here in the story. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says that she, Mary, the mother of Jesus, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What did Jesus come for? To save people from their sins. So we have this progression of God placing Adam and Eve in a paradise in the garden. And within three chapters of the story, Adam and Eve have already sinned and they've already been evicted from the Garden of Eden. And what we find is story after story of Israelites and of people reliving the story of Adam and Eve. And then thousands of years later, you and I continue to live the story of Adam and Eve. We continue to, to develop these destructive behaviors that we call sin and they ultimately get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. But in Matthew, it tells us that Jesus would save and rescue his people from their sins. But the red flag should go up in your mind because his people were who? What did Jesus say? The lost sheep of what? Israel. So at this point, we should have a problem with this passage because instantly we are all excluded from this promise. We are excluded because we are not a part of the house of Israel. Except for this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Up to this point, the good news was for the house of Israel. But what we find is that Jesus goes on and he says, go, into, go and make disciples of what? All nations. He didn't say make disciples of every nation, like every single person. That's called a crusade. There was problems with that hundreds of years ago. We don't do that. But what Jesus is saying is he is opening up the promise of eternal salvation and eternal life to everyone now. 
He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, and my grace and my goodness and my love and this salvation and the forgiveness of their sins is now open to people from all nations. This great commission has more good news built into it than we first realized. Because this is the defining moment where Jesus opens the door to every single person. So I want to look at at another. I want to ask a question and then try to answer it. The, The question that is answered in this text is, why did Jesus leave to begin with? If Jesus comes to earth once, why would he have to leave? I would say, and I don't know, and this is me processing things, so I may be wrong, so don't, you know, quote me on this. But I wonder if a part of the reason is because Jesus wanted to give as many people as possible to hear this message of grace. Jesus, in essence, chooses the Israelites or the Jewish people of the first century again to be his messengers and to share his message everywhere. Paul couple of books later in the bible would say that all who believe are a part of the spiritual israel of god which means that you and me together this morning believers of jesus are make up the the the, what they call the spiritual israel of god which means that we are a part of the group that god has called to share his message i would i would argue that jesus leaves so that his disciples, including you and me now, would be able to take the message of grace, redemption, and forgiveness into all the world. That the second coming of Jesus is good news. It's not doom and gloom, but rather that when Jesus returns, and this is clear in the Bible, that he is coming to restore this place. So let me, let me share with you one last passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You want to know what's interesting about this? It doesn't say that we go back to heaven with him. This is first century language when when Caesar or when an emperor or when a king would be coming from one town over into your town. You know what we would do? The people would go and meet Caesar halfway and usher him back into their town. This is Paul using language that he says that when Jesus comes, in essence, we will be caught up, right, in the clouds. What he's painting a picture of is that God will come into our world and into our place. And the book of Revelation tells us that God will renew this entire planet and that it will be a paradise once again. The second coming isn't scary. It isn't doom. And some of you are like, well, what about Matthew 25, 24, and 26? (laughs) We'll get to that another day. But what I wanted to make sure that we did this morning is to reclaim that the second coming of Jesus is nothing but good news. That it is nothing but God redeeming and reconciling us back to the Father. It says, and through him, Jesus, God would reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. The second coming is the culmination of of God being vindicated, that God was always loving, always powerful, always merciful, always graceful, and always will be, 
The second coming is just that moment when God breaks into our human experience and makes all things new. The reason, and I'll share this with you, that I didn't share yet some of these things in Matthew 24, 25, and 26 where it's the signs of the end is because we get so caught up on that that we end up looking for all these signs everywhere and we find them everywhere all the time. But in the meantime, we miss out on what God is actually calling us to do as we wait. So next Sabbath, if you're here, if you're, you know, as you're a guest, if you're not here, we invite you to come back. Because next Sabbath, I'm actually going to get into what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' second coming? How do you know if you are truly ready? And so next Sabbath, we're going to dig into that. But this Sabbath was just, it was just to, to establish the framework that the second coming of Jesus is when all things will be renewed, all things will be put to right. There will be no, there will be no aliens, probably, There will be no monsters, I don't think. (laughs) But it'll be a day of good news. For when we see God break into our human experience, we will know that nothing was done in vain and that we will finally live into the fullness of God's mercy, love, and grace. Amen. So
Will you please stand for me as we have our benediction? Gracious God, we want to thank you that you bless us continually. We want to thank you that one day you're coming to renew all things, to restore all things, and to make everything new. Until then, Lord, we pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and that you would fill us with grace and mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.